It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 31st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Assisting another person to end their life is illegal. Should it be? And should it be legally permissible to help someone to die under certain circumstances? These are the questions a special Oireachtas committee will hope to answer before making recommendations to the government to consider. We're joined this morning by two members of that committee people before Prophet TD Gino Kenny who will chair the committee and independent Senator Ronan Mullen. Good morning to both of you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Ronan Mullen if I could start with you would I be right in thinking uh, that you don't actually want to be on this committee? No I I do want to be on the committee and I ask for the support of Shannon's colleagues and I'm one of the five that that was chosen um, like Gino and myself are both members of the committee of great respect for Gino we have very different views on okay. this particular issue maybe I could ask the question a different way do you, do, do you want to be on this committee in the way that the committee is structured well I have written to the committee chairman designate and that's Michael Healy Ray TD and I said I'm concerned first of all about the way the committee has been described as a committee on assisted dying I regard it as assisted suicide that's being promoted here. Uh, Different people have different views. It should be assisted dying or assisted suicide. The terminology shouldn't be pushing us in one direction or the other. But more seriously, the wording of the remit that we've been given so far, unless it's changed, is that we're being asked to make recommendations for policy or legislative changes um, on, on, on on a right to assist the dying. That suggests, you know, on one reading, that we're not allowed to recommend against it, if that's what we come up with, uh, having heard all the evidence. So I've written to the chairman and said, listen, this needs to change. We need to get legal advice about whether we can change it ourselves as a committee or whether we have to go back to the small enchanted and say, would you word this properly, please? Right. Uh, I'm not sure why uh, you interpreted it uh, to mean that, uh, but regardless of your interpretation... I was about to ask you a question, but regard, regardless of that, uh, it, it follows uh, the uh, majority of members of the Dáil who voted in favour of this. Yeah, and by the way, just on what I was saying, the Irish Palliative Medicine Consultants Association share my concerns. They're also worried about the way uh, that the orders that came from the Dáil and Shannon motions are worded. So this isn't just something I've cooked up in my own imagination, Michael. Uh, look, different people have different views on this. It was certainly uh, worrying to me that Gino's bill passed a second stage uh, in the Dáil. A lot of people and experts and medical experts commented on how flawed they thought that that bill was. Um, you know, so it, we are at a very risky time. We already live in a society where many older people, um, uh, people with serious illness, 
uh, people who are vulnerable one way are often treated as second-class citizens. And one of the great fears that people have about euthanasia or assisted suicide or assisted dying, whatever you want to call it, is that people come to feel a burden. And there is major alarm about what's happening in Canada where their medical assistance in dying legislation seems to be used by healthcare people to traffic people towards euthanasia. Mainstream media reporting on this. I'd encourage people to Google Alan Nichols and what happened to him, a man who had no life-threatening illnesses, age 61, went in with depression. A hearing impairment was the only physical thing that that could be identified, and there is worry that basically he was trafficked towards uh, euthanasia, and that's certainly what his, his family members think. Human rights advocates are worried about this, and it's not just in Canada that this Pandora's box, once it's opened, leads to, seems to lead to all sorts of abuses. You live in a society at the moment, if you turn on your television at the weekend, you'll see ads encouraging older people to save up for their own funeral so that their, their children don't have to pay for it. That's the kind of mentality we have in our society now across the board, where people are encouraged to feel a burden, encouraged to get out of the way. There are, in some places where euthanasia or assisted dying, as might be called, or assisted suicide is legal, you have health um, insurance companies which won't pay for, let's say, your cancer treatment, but they will pay uh, for your assisted suicide. So it, it's, a, it's a brave new world, and... It, it, a lot of people uh, of all sorts of different perspectives on a range of other issues are worried about what this might mean for the old, for the disabled and for the vulnerable. All right, I think you've probably shocked a, a lot of people. Now let's go to Gino Kenny. Gino Kenny, uh, I'm sure you want to respond to that. Uh, the uh, first question, uh, I suppose, is if... Uh, there is uh, uh, the right to assist people to die in this country. Is it the first step to legalising euthanasia or uh, uh, actually legalising euthanasia? Oh, first of all, my God, I'm I'm not the chair, uh, and I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's mm, Michael Hilly Ray. Michael yeah, Hilly yeah, Ray. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a member, like uh, Ronan, and I look forward to the debate. Um, and obviously, the committee was first flagged nearly two years ago by the Justice Committee after I submitted uh, the Dying with Dignity Bill. It did pass that stage in October 2020, um, and the Justice Committee recommended that a special committee be set up. Now, that was nearly two years ago, so this has been um, delayed, and it's, it's, it's done a very bad disservice in relation to a debate that needs to be had. And I looked at the term as a reference this morning in relation to the committee, and I think it's very fair. It obviously looks at the, the constitutional, legal and ethical issues around the issue. Uh, it, it says the examination of safeguards in relation to the provisions of assisted dying in Ireland, how assisted dying might operate in Ireland, and identification of possible unattended consequences of such uh, provision. So it's quite broad. Uh, it's not predetermined by any means. Um, and obviously as a person that supports the issue of assisted dying, I would like um, the committee, in my kind of, I suppose, role as one member of the committee, uh, I would like to see it recommended legislative change uh, in relation to um, how assisted dying could uh, operate in Ireland. But it can uh, recommend against oh, that. Of course, it can. It can. It can recommend anything. You know, it can recommend absolutely anything. It can recommend that it should not go no further. It should. It can recommend literally anything. Like, and that's the, I suppose, the, the remit of any committee. You know, it's it's not predetermined, and uh, I don't know where Ron's getting that from. And I don't think I mean the issue around 
the name change uh, of the committee. I mean, that's up to the, the committee itself, right? I mean, I don't think the word suicide should be conflated with the assisted dying. I think it's it's weaponising the word suicide. Or euthanasia. It's very yeah, it's, it's, it's dangerous. I think it's very dangerous to conflate issues of assisted dying with suicide. I, okay. I don't think we should go near that. Okay, do you accept that, Ronan Mullen? Well, I think we, 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 we rightly spend a lot of time and effort and resources trying to prevent suicide. Uh, and at the root but of... But you accept that there's a difference between uh, assisted suicide and assisted dying? No, actually. I think they're interchangeable terms depending on how you look on the issue. I think the, the worry that many of people would have is that at a time when we're working to, to, to discourage despair and encourage people to have hope and to go forward despite the challenges, and everyone has different challenges in their life, that when you legalise assisted suicide, which is effectively what it is if a person wants to end their life and seeks to have the assistance of another in making it happen, that you weaken society's ability uh, to care for its most vulnerable members. Let's okay. just say that... Well, I'm let, 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 allow Gino Kenny to come back on that, because that's a, an important well, point for people. Yeah, but Michael, when, when we're talking about... Um, change in the law. We're talking about um, a voluntary decision by that particular person that's in that situation of it, you know, coming to the end of their life. But also they would need assistance in that. And assistance would be by the state, um, because obviously you have to change the law, and that would have to be done uh, via, you know, I suppose, a doctor. So there's a lot of safeguards in relation to assisted dying being introduced in Ireland. Okay, but what's the difference between assisted suicide and uh, assisted dying? Because we're all dying from the moment we're born, if you like. Uh, Yeah. Well, Michael, I just don't think that we should not conflate the issue. Hmm. But explain it to us. I mean, for people... Okay, I mean, in the the mid-90s, suicide uh, was decriminalised. It was, you know, beforehand, it was illegal. Um, to take somebody's life, to take your yeah. own life, yeah. right? And it's, it's a completely different set of circumstances in relation to uh, somebody that could be you know, maybe in that situation to somebody that's coming to the end of their life when yeah. they have a term yeah. illness. You're, you're talking, you're talking yeah. about two different scenarios. Uh, somebody, oh, complete, somebody who's fit and well uh, dying by suicide oh. and some somebody who has a yeah. uh, 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 life-ending uh, it's diagnosis. Life, it's a life-ending uh, condition, and they're coming to their end of life. Mm. They're coming to the end uh, of life, and they're choosing the time to end their life. Exactly, and, and the they, way that they end their life, rather than doing it through some of the terrible circumstances. Exactly, that some and exactly. And I, I hate even talking about it. I hate even trying to people trying to complain. Uh, no, and it's ingenuous. I think, but but it, it's it's, it's, it's important for people listening. I, I think, uh, Ronan Mullen, do you, yeah. do you do you do you do you understand the difference uh, as it's explained there to us, and do you accept it? No, I understand Gino's sincerity in trying to see a difference, but why is it that where assisted dying slash assisted suicide is legalised, it goes from being, you know, if you talk to some of the most sincere advocates of this, they don't say, oh, we want to just stop it here at terminal illness. They want it for any reason where a person decides. And what you have in countries where this is legalised is people lose that will to live. And, and you have people who, who's only, who, are not, who are physically well. I give the example of Alan Nichols. You have a, a, a financial and the, the bean counter system, the, 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 those who pay for health insurance, they have a stake um, in, in not 
dealing with people's complex challenges. But, but the dying with dignity bill had nothing to do with situations like that. It had to do with people who have terminal illness. Well, I'm pointing out to you that when it, it starts off like that, but very soon you get people having different discussions and saying, well, you know, who decides what terminal is? You said, you said yourself, we're all dying from the moment we're born. Uh, you have constant pressure to widen this so that it, particularly around people with okay. depression. Right. Uh, so that's, so and, that's, that, and that's, a, that's a reality. That's well, not something that I've Well, d- depression, that's, is that's not a ter- depression is not a, a terminal illness. What safeguards are there or could there be in place uh, if there was legislation uh, enacted to uh, allow people to assist others to die, Gino Kenny, uh, that would stop it broadening out to those type of scenarios? Well, Michael, I mean, I said from the very outset um, that somebody of advanced age, somebody with a disability, somebody that has uh, mental health issues could never advance, could never avail of assisted dying. So that's, you know, I'm very um, honest about that. Uh, it's somebody that's in the situation that has a terminal illness that's coming to the end of their life. That could be six months, could be less. And the majority of people will never ever want to avail of assisted dying in many circumstances. circumstances. But there are uh, situations where somebody that's coming to the end of their life, and if they want to forego a certain period of that time, whether it's days, weeks, or months, they should have a choice. They should have a choice in relation to, you know, medically and legally in kind of choosing um, to forego that certain amount of time. And I think, it's, I think it's a basic human right that somebody should have a say in how in their end-of-life care. And this paternalistic approach, um, you know, hasn't served Ireland well in relation to a lot of issues. Uh, so I think there's... Look, at this debate will happen. Whether at the end of this debate, um, you know, we'll be talking about legislative change, I hope we do. But it's a long way to go. And uh, I think the public are open... Uh, to the idea um, of assisted dying, I think people moved on from the kind of you know the dogma of you know of of religious dogma that we had in this country, and I think you know that's a good thing, um, but it's not predetermined by any means. Mm. And you know, if it was introduced in Ireland, I think there's plenty of safeguards, and it could be kind of operational in a very very kind of um, a good way, so people can have a choice, at least a choice relation to their end of life. Okay, Ronan Mullen, you're a deeply religious person, aren't you? Uh, is that what's guiding your thinking? No, I think we need to leave faith issues to one side here. Um, we're going to hear from a lot of doctors and medical representatives, particularly those who are involved in palliative care, and the vast majority of them are very concerned by this. this is the, I did a report myself on palliative care at the Council of Europe a few years ago. What can be achieved in terms of management of pain and discomfort these days is marvellous. And in fact, one of the issues that palliative mm. care specialists constantly point out is people come with fears. But when you address the spiritual, emotional, the relational issues, the fears that people have, mm. you can remove the desire. Palliative care is fantastic, but I, I'm sure I, I'm sure I'm sure you'll agree, uh, and I'm sure you'll have known people who had what you would call a good death, and you know others who didn't, uh, despite palliative care. Uh, and I suppose the question here is not uh, should people be forced or uh, 
feel challenged in some way, that they're a burden, uh, but that they would have the choice. Yeah, you can eliminate, you cannot ever, of course, eliminate pain and suffering completely, but we can do so much to manage it, and that that is often not realised. Doctors who, who deal with people in those good and more difficult situations, many of them feel that any form of assisted dying, assisted suicide will hinder their ability to do their best for their patients because morale and the will to live and hope are so much a part of helping people to cope with illness, Mm. terminal or otherwise. That is hindered once you introduce a euthanasia culture. Do you think palliative... We take the emphasis away from the care that can be given through palliative care that can bring so much reassurance in this situation. Do do, Do you think that palliative care can hasten death? Yes, I mean, I think that there's a very important distinction between giving treatment to alleviate symptoms, mm. knowing that that will shorten a person's life yeah. where, the, where, the, where the intention is not to directly end the life. And I think there's a big difference there. there. And it's always been understood uh, by medical professionals. But this, if you if you scratch the surface of the it's fi- debate, uh, 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 it, of course it's a fine line, and there are fine lines in all of these moral mm. issues, Michael. But if you if you scratch the surface, of I this, mean, you're you're you talking about you're saying that people shouldn't take drugs to shorten their life, because there's drugs there that will make them live a, a little bit longer, but those drugs will also shorten their life. Yeah, I mean, if your primary aim is to alleviate pain and suffering, that is absolutely fine. If your aim is to end life, that is the problem. And I would ask you and challenge anybody, Mm. show me the advocates for what they say is limited um, assisted suicide. And then ask them directly, would you like it to go further than that? And the vast majority will say yes, they would, if if they're honest about it. And this starts the journey in that direction. Okay, Gino Kenny. from the journey of palliative care and reassurance and all the the surrounds that the state needs Mm. to put in place and the community needs to put in place to actually help people deal with the suffering and challenge of life. And so much can be done these days that couldn't be done years ago. Okay, Gino Kenny, come back on that if you would, please. Yeah, I mean, Michael, hospice and palliative care is very, very good in Ireland. We're very lucky. Mm. Um, And many people that have experienced hospice and palliative care um, have had a good experience, even though it can be extremely difficult in the circumstances of their loved one about to die. Um, But given that, uh, I think there's a set of circumstances that somebody that, you know, is going to die um, maybe doesn't want to go through certain periods of, you know, the, the end of, of their life. And as I said, time frame could be months, weeks or days. In that situation, if somebody does not want to go through certain difficulties, and not all modern medication can ameliorate uh, certain difficulties, coming to their end of life, and that's proven. In that situation, Michael, if somebody wants to say, look, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to go through that certain couple of months in palliative care. I want to end my life with the help of the medical profession and the state. I have no problem with that. Absolutely no problem. And if somebody wants to do that, because the most important voice in all this debate is the person that finds themselves in that situation. Mm. And why would you deny somebody that says, look, I don't want to go through certain part of that. You know, this is my life. It's my life at the end of the day. Nobody else's. And, you know, I think the structure should be put in place. And obviously you have to change the law. There's somebody 
could avail of assisted dying. Okay. So I think it's a, it's a very, very, very basic human right. And I think hopefully now we'll have this debate mm. on the next nine months. Okay. Maybe no, Roland Mullen would want to respond to that, though. Why would you deny somebody that? Well, the only reason you would you would ever say to a person you do not have total control and the absolute last word on on whether somebody has to help you die is because there are consequences for other people. It's the consequences for those who will not cope with the result. It's the consequences for those who may be even subject to abuse by other family members, beneficiaries, who basically, to be frank, and it does happen, we have to be honest in our world, that people would want others off the scene sooner rather than later. But would you deny somebody in the way that Gino Kenny described to us there? As I said, if if there were no consequences for other people, you could certainly talk about exceptions, but there will always be consequences to this for other people, and that's what people have to weigh up. Instead of keeping the focus on all this we can do with palliative care, if you start saying somebody has a right to have their life ended here, what starts out as an option will come to be an obligation for many. The medical profession will come under pressure. Their conscience issues about whether they're actually caring properly for their parents of patients won't be respected anymore because they will be expected to be a part of this system that fast-tracks people towards an end of life. It's, it's caring, not killing, that we should be focused on. Do you know what? If nothing else, I think this conversation this morning on the radio has proven to all of us that this is a very difficult conversation. And before the committee starts its hearings, I think it's true to say, Ronan Mullen, that you're not approaching this with an open mind. We all have deep convictions about this if we're serious people. Um, of course I would listen, and, and I know Gina will, listen to the, the other point of view and tease it out very carefully. But, you know, I try to be serious about these issues. I've mm. been thinking about them for years and reading and researching them. As mm. I said, I did a report on palliative care for the Council of Europe. So, I mean, you know, and what does an open mind mean? Does it mean somebody with no principles at all? Or does it mean somebody who has their convictions but will always listen? And that's why, know, and and that's why the conversation is going to be very difficult for a nation, because I have to put the same point to Gino Kenny to conclude. I, I don't believe that you're going to approach this with an open mind either. Well, I, I do have an open mind, Michael, um, and I want to listen to everybody, even though I completely disagree with Ron, but I, 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 I respect his views, and you know, there's people in our society that would probably agree with Ron that, you know, under no circumstances where sister dying should be legislated for. But opinion polls um, indicate that there would be a majority of people that would support in the change of legislation around uh, this uh, this uh, area. So, um, and people have moved on, I think, as I said from the outside, I think people have moved on the last number of decades in relation to issues that were not, you know, were to do. So I come with an open mind. I want to hear from the broad spectrum of those that agree with Sister Dine, those completely opposed and those that maybe are in the middle, that are kind of just, you know, kind of have reservations, but want to know more. And I think there's a lot of people in that bracket. Uh, But I think, from my kind of soundings, I think the majority of people in Ireland are ready for this debate, and I think they're even, they're they're ready for um, 
the law to be changed over the next couple of years. Okay. All right, as I say, uh, it's obviously going to be a very difficult conversation and thanks to both of you for starting that conversation with us on the programme this morning and indeed for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, We were speaking with People Before Profit TD, Gino Kenny and Independent Senator Rona Mullen. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Seems like Irish water really has upset people in Drogheda, in Baltray, and in Termonfecken. I'm actually shocked to get your text this morning. Jack WhatsApping us saying nearly three days of no water in Westcourt and the surrounding areas due to Irish work, water working on the pipes in Green Hills. No communication, no tanker supplies, no bottled water supplies. Absolutely disgraceful. A shambolic service. As I say, Jack, I'm absolutely shocked (laughs) I was going to mention this anyway this morning but I really am shocked because I got an email uh, 9.36 from Irish Water saying that water has been returned to all customers this morning but I I take it uh, that uh, that didn't happen in the 15 minutes between your text message and the email from Irish Water so we'll get on to them and tell them uh, that you're still without water in Westcourt maybe you'd uh, text back if it's come on in the meantime uh, but we'll get back on to them and see what the story is there. Uh, we did uh, make contact with them when we got the complaints yesterday uh, and they then got back in touch with us after the programme had ended to say that the water would be back by three o'clock. That didn't happen uh, and uh, that uh, was to be nine o'clock in term in fact. And at that stage, they said that uh, this was around tea time. They said that the water had been restored everywhere else. Uh, the water didn't come back at nine o'clock in term in fact. And it did come back on overnight. Uh, and now we're being told this morning that it's been supplied to all customers. But uh, that coincides with that message from Jack uh, in Westcourt saying he has no water. Uh, maybe uh, if you are with or without water, you'd uh, make contact with with us. Oh, Jack says it's back on. Thank you, Jack. Much appreciate that. Uh, so we won't make contact with Irish Water. Oh, by the way, we did ask them to explain uh, what happened. Uh, we got a statement which doesn't explain what happened uh, because the water should have been back on yesterday. Everybody knew it was going off because this is important work with the sewage pipes. Uh, but uh, it didn't come back and we asked them to explain what happened, uh, but they wouldn't uh, come onto the programme. Uh, they weren't available for a- an interview. Uh, to some other comments coming to us, thanks very much, Jack, for coming back to me. I really do appreciate that. Uh, somebody else says, Michael, we are not dying from the moment we're born. We're living from the moment we're born right up to the moment we die. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I can't argue with that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, I'll still continue to believe uh, that from the moment we're born, we're dying. It's the only one certain thing in life. Uh, we've uh, Eric in Dundalk in touch with us about the right to die as well or the right to have someone assist you to die. Uh, He says, when a person is in good health, they should sign an official document declaring their wishes if they want to end their own life or or not. Thank you, Eric, uh, for that. Uh, And if you would like to make a comment on the programme today, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is, as always, 041-983-2000. You can ring us on that number. Maggie will take your call and she'll take your comment and uh, we'd be delighted to read it out and let people know what you are are thinking about this morning. 041-983 Three two thousand is the telephone number. You can WhatsApp or text us on 086-1800-658. That's 086-1800-658.
and email michael at lmfm.ie if you wish. Now, Jack woke up to no water this morning. I'm glad it's back on for you, Jack. Uh, Let's hear uh, how the people in the United States are waking up this morning by taking a a listen uh, to National Public Radio for a minute. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Shay Stevens. A New York grand jury has indicted former President Donald Trump on charges involving hush money payments to an adult film star. Trump is accused of listing those payments as a retainer for his attorney. NPR's Andrea Bernstein explains what is likely to happen next. Typically, a defendant is notified and makes arrangements to surrender to authorities. We don't know when that will be. Usually it takes a number of days, but of course nothing is usual about this case. Procedure calls for a defendant to turn themselves in, usually early in the morning, to the criminal courts building in Lower Manhattan to get fingerprinted and processed and then to walk to the courtroom, usually in handcuffs. We don't know what will happen this time. Trump will face a judge to be read the charges and plead, we presume, not guilty. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reporting. Meanwhile, former Vice President Mike Pence is condemning the indictment of Trump. Pence tells CNN he also sees it as political persecution. I think the unprecedented indictment of a former president of the United States on a campaign finance issue is an outrage. And, and it appears to, to millions of Americans to be nothing more than a political prosecution that's driven by a prosecutor who literally ran for office on the pledge to indict the former president. When asked about chants by pro-Trump rioters to kill him, Pence said he didn't know about them until after the Capitol insurrection on January 6, 2021. He added that he believes that some of the people in the crowd simply got caught up. It is remarkable news, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, Shay Stevens there on NPR. That's National Public Radio in America. And my God, we're going to watch history unfold in front of our eyes. Will the former president's mugshot be shown on television? because he will be photographed in the way those accused of crimes in America are. Will his fingerprints uh, be something that will be made public along with the mugshot? Will he be handcuffed? Will he do that perp walk? In fact, will he be handcuffed doing the perp walk? Uh, And what if he's convicted? Uh, Will he continue uh, with his bid to become the next president of America? It really is interesting stuff, isn't it? Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. John, good morning to you and thanks uh, for coming. Us. Uh, you were listening uh, to the debate between Ronan Mullen and uh, Gene O'Kenny, and you wanted to comment on it. I was indeed, yeah. You know, um, I suppose Ronan is entitled to his uh, beliefs and entitled to his uh, opinion and all of that, and, you know, but I, I'm very concerned that Ronan has such an entrenched position in relation to this particular subject. Uh, being a legislator, I, I think he should have more of an open mind. Do you not think uh, uh, it's the same with Gino Kenny that they both have well, interest? Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, coming uh, to uh, Gino as well. <laughs> you know, so, but, like, I think you have to come, <clears throat> sorry, you have to come from the perspective that I'm going to come from. <clears throat> in the last 12 months, I have had two brothers passed away. Sorry to hear serious. that, John. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, d- deeper sympathy, deep, yeah. deeper sympathies to you, John. Just to say that first of all. Yeah, yeah. yeah. both are very serious um, mm-hmm. ailments. One long term and the other very short term. One had Alzheimer and the other had um, more a neuron. And like when at the, we'll talk about my brother that had the uh, Alzheimer's when he came to towards the end of his life. 
Like he had no quality of life. Whereas family loved him and looked after him as best accorded. He was looked after in care and went through the palliative care and all that kind of stuff. But there has to come a stage in your life where, you know, if uh, if I was a farmer and I treated any of the animals in the manner that we treat some of our old people when they get to that stage of life, you'd be in court and you'd end up in Mountjoy prison. So we have to get to the stage, regardless of how we address it or what way we talk about it, there is a time that comes in your life when you are absolutely incapacitated, when you can't do your own bodily functions, you can't look after yourself, your mind is not your own, everything is gone, you can't move your hands, you can't move your legs, you can't do nothing for yourself. With all the love in the world, sometimes, you know, you have to come to the difficult decision to decide to do what I believe is the right thing. And that was that that brother. Now, my other brother got more neuron, as I said. And when he was diagnosed with it, he put in place a, a system whereby if he got to that stage of life, it would, he would be able to do that. He doesn't live in Ireland. He lives out in Scandinavia, is the way I'll put it. And he got so bad in the end, and he, he died so quickly in the end, he didn't actually get to do that. But at the same time, he was there and it was in place. And he was also blessed to die so quickly. Yeah. Because, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing to watch your family. You know, he wouldn't allow me to go over to visit him. He wouldn't allow his own sisters to go over to visit him. Yes. You know, yeah. and uh, because he was in such a bad state of repair. Yeah. Now, he was awful lucky. The last thing to go with him, usually the first thing to go is your voice. And I spoke to him three or four years before he died. You know, and like, you know, when you're listening to and talking to somebody and they're saying to you, you know, I can't do anything for myself. He couldn't lift his hands. He couldn't move himself. He couldn't go toilet himself. He could do nothing. And like, just sometimes, you know, you have to have the right, you do the right thing. And uh, Roland was saying like, you know, it's the easy option. It's never the easy option. It's not the easy option for any person to decide that. Whether the person that's unwell or the person that's the loved ones that's left. Mm. Sometimes it's the kindest thing to do for that person. They're both very cruel diseases, uh, John. Oh, uh, my God, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Incredible. Uh, and a lot of people worry about the way they'll be remembered um, when yes. uh, it comes to dementia or, or, yes. or, or uh, yes. Alzheimer's, yes. Parkinson's. Uh, there, 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 there's a problem there. You were talking, uh, I think, about making a decision uh, but that person themselves can't make that decision because they're not compass mentis. Uh, That's the issue. That's the issue. But when they are compass mentis, they yeah. do make the decision. And I think that's the imp- important difference. When the person is well and capable, they make that decision for the time that they now become incapable. And I think it should be respected. When that person signs on the dotted line and is witnessed and it's the person is saying this person is capable of making this decision, when it gets to that, be it 12 months later, 18 months later, or 10 weeks later, when that person gets to that stage of life, I believe that that's when it should when it should happen. At the, at, there should be no conflict. That's the way it should be. When the doctors say, this is end of life, this is done, this guy could live for the next, this lady could live for the next six months in this state and not know what's going on, not able to look after themselves, not able to do a thing, I think it's a decent thing. As I do say, and I don't mean to be abrupt, you wouldn't do it to an animal. Yeah.
I'm Pe- people will change their minds. Uh, I mean, that's a, you know a, another yeah. part of the the the, the, the difficulty in, in trying to uh, well, form an opinion on this. Yeah. That, the person will never change their mind because that person, as they get as they get further into that condition, they're certainly never going to be able to change their mind. That is done. The only person that's going to change their mind is the able-bodied person that's left, that's sitting there looking or whatever. They're the person that changes their mind. As you get older and sicker or younger and sicker or whatever the case may be, you're never going to change your mind because your mind is gone. Mm-hmm. But they're never going to change their mind. But they had, when they were compassmentists, they had made a conscious decision to say, listen, when it comes to end of my life and I am no longer able to do this and I am no longer able to, please euthanize me. Mm-hmm. And they have made that decision in a conscious state. They know. But there's no one asking to make it in an, an unconscious state. That are not, you know, when you get to the, pr- the point where you are not able to look after yourself, or, sorry, mm-hmm. think for yourself, yeah. you know, then at that stage, unfortunately, it's too late. No one can say, well, listen, I'm sorry, this guy needs to get a lethal injection or this yeah. lady needs to get... No, th- I'm sorry, that's too late. Yeah. But if, today, if I go into this my solicitor with Michael Reed and I, he witnesses and my solicitor witnesses and they say, right, in four months, five months, six months' time, when I get to the stage where I am unable to communicate, unable to recognize anybody, unable to do anything for myself mm. at that stage please give me a lethal injection and put me to sleep. It's been a, a dreadful me. year for you, having lost two of your brothers. Uh, yes, uh, oh yeah um, what I mean, you, do you think know, if they had the, sure Do you think if they had the choice that that's the choice they would have well, made? Well, my younger brother had, he did he did yeah. opt, he did mm. opt, he did all set, it just happened that he was lucky enough everything yeah. happened so quick mm. it just happened so quick Mm. He was, he had it all set. He was, he had it all set. But my other brother wouldn't have had no. Yeah. And uh, you know because like he lives in a different part of the world and it was you know okay. and his family and himself that they didn't want that. But my other brother did. He had it all set, but okay. he didn't get to that. Yeah. Okay. Well, John, I think, I, I think you know that the legislators have to give everybody an option. And as you said earlier in the conversation, it's your option when you're compass mentis. And it comes to the point where there has to be a set where. You you say, I'm sorry, this person is no longer capable of making these decisions. We can't sign off on it. Okay, John, you know? I have to leave it there because... Uh, no, that's gone, Michael, and thanks for talking to me and thanks for... Thanks very much for ringing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, and again, sympathies uh, to you and your family uh, and uh, for taking the co- time. Thank you for taking the time to call us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Neurodiversity Navin is a, a new community group uh, that wants to make Navin a neurodiverse friendly town. Let's speak uh, to to the founder of uh, the group, Ava Burke, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Ava. Thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Sunday is World Autism Day, and you join us uh, as part of Autism Acceptance Week uh, this week. Tell us a little bit about your group and its aims. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, so maybe let me explain a little bit what neurodiversity is. Um, so neurodiversity is is a term that is used to describe the difference in the way people's brains work. Um, so, so common neurotypes your listeners would be familiar with would be autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and there's, there's many more. And essentially, neurodiversity tells us that there is no correct way for the brain to work. Instead, there's a wide range of ways that people perceive and respond to the world, and these differences are to be embraced and encouraged. And, you know, just because someone acts differently or communicates in a different way 
or doesn't follow all of the invisible social rules that society has somehow deemed um, so important, it doesn't mean their way of being human is wrong or broken. And Mm. and that ultimately is what embracing neurodiversity is all about. Mm. Um, So at Neurodiversity, Navin, Michael, I founded this um, last month, but it it was something I had been really thinking about since last summer. I I had a a bad personal experience in a local business with my twin daughters. Um, They are nine, and one of them is neurodivergent. Um, So Katie was identified as autistic when she was four and a half, and ADHD last year. And for Katie, I would describe her um, probably as having an invisible disability. You know, she looks like a neurotypical child. And unfortunately, in our society, you know, that comes with all these expectations of how she should behave. Mm. And um, we had an experience where she was treated in a way that, in, in my view, was totally unacceptable. And it left her apologising profusely um, and her twin sister very upset at, at, at how Katie had been treated. Right. So it really was from that moment that I knew I had to do something to change her community, you know. So to that improve Katie understanding never... so that people wouldn't act in whatever way uh, the person acted in, in uh, that story. That's exactly yeah, it, yeah, Michael, yeah, you know, and so yeah. that Katie would never have to apologise for being herself again because mm. that's ultimately all she was doing, you know, and I I want her and other neurodivergent children to grow up in a community that, as you say, is better informed, you know, accepting and ultimately is inclusive to everyone. Um, So it was really from that moment um, that I got more involved in the neurodiverse community and I was so inspired by a phenomenal group of parents in Sandy Mount who started a movement themselves in their community and they made significant changes to improve the lives of neurodivergent children. And, and it was such a success that they went on to found the national charity, Neurodiversity Ireland. Um, and they encourage other communities essentially to um, embrace the same changes. Right. Um, mm. And so, what about your own background? Uh, have you uh, a medical background of any I description? Don't, no, 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 no. You're just so, a determined um, mother, is it? I am indeed. Yeah, yeah. I'm just mm. A, mm. I'm a parent to, to as I said, and you're a divergent. Mm. Um, uh, if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Girl, I, I, should, I, I, I should rephrase that. I said just a determined yeah. mother. I just rephrased <laughs> that to a determined mother. A very did, important <laughs> role, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, my background, Michael, is in is in bank uh, banking. I, mm. I worked for one of the global American banks for 16 years. Mm. Um, I was doing really well. You know, my career was something I was very proud of. But um, COVID was kind of a, a bit of an eye-opening moment. You know, it was, a, it, was a, it was tough on everyone, but it was a little tough on Casey. So... Um, it was March 2021 that I made the decision to um, give up my career and, and just focus on being um, at home with the girls and, and in particular meet Katie's needs. Mm. And, you know, I'm delighted I made that decision because ultimately neurodiversity in Navin was born out of that. And Katie um, has two conditions, as you say. She's on the spectrum, uh, but then she suffers from ADHD. Uh, does that complicate it further? Well, a lot of a lot of autistic people would um, have. It's not uncommon for them also to have ADHD. So, you know, Katie was very young when she was identified as autistic. Um, and to be honest, that that whole process of 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 going through that assessment is is quite a difficult one. You know, the language that's used in these assessments um, are really very negative and and. Um, there, you know, there's words used like um, restrictive, um, um, uh, failure, you know, lacking mm. in certain areas. I'm surprised to hear that because uh, quite often autistic uh, people are hugely intelligent, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, it, there's also autistic people that aren't, you know, and, mm. and have um, advantage and, and have um, benefit society in much different ways. And there's a very well-known saying that says you meet one autistic person, you have met one autistic person. And it's because everyone is different. And, and, and that really is what we're trying to get the message out um, for, because there unfortunately still is a lot of um, stigma um, around neurodivergent mm. people and around some of the terms and um, that really is what neurodiversity in Avon is about. Mm. And, and, and there's two really main objectives that we're looking to, to carry out, Michael. The first one, as I mentioned, um, in order to make Navin a neurodiverse friendly town, um, we really want to launch a campaign. And that will involve working within our community to implement neurodiverse inclusive policies. Mm. These are often shoot, very shoot, small. Shoot forward. What does it mean? Uh, I mean, what would the end result be? Yeah, well, ultimately, there are changes, Michael, that are that are small to uh, local businesses, but they're really meaningful and 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 foster inclusion for neurodiver- neurodivergent people mm. and their families. And some of the examples of what's been done, I mentioned Sandy Mount, they've done phenomenal things. So they have um, uh, the, the likes of the Tesco there in their village has an express till, so that neurodivergent person can access facilities in, in a way that meets their needs. You know, they can mm. get in and out of the town much more efficiently. And a lot of the time, neurodivergent people um, would also have sensory sensitivity. So when you do have sensory sensitivities, it's, it's very important that you do have this ease of access. 
um, because often these places like supermarkets can be very overwhelming. Mm. Um, and they've also, um, we've seen some restaurants in Sandy Mount offering up quieter areas to families. Um, and also they've rolled out dedicated parking spaces for neurodivergent people and their families. And these are strategically placed throughout Sandy Mount Village so that, you know, stressful daily activities are made that little bit easier. Mm. And I, I do want to emphasize, you know, it's 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 not about creating advantages for anyone. This really is about equity, equality and acceptance and having a level playing field um, and making that in a community that really is inclusive for all, you know, and, right. and one where neurodivergent people can can be themselves and feel like the community works for them as well. I, I don't know what happened uh, in that shop uh, when uh, you were offended, uh, but was it that your daughter offended somebody? <clears throat> because yeah. quite quite often autistic people will say what they think, uh, and maybe we're Absolutely. all thinking it, but we don't say it. Yeah, yeah, that's so true, you know, and um, Katie is the most straightforward speaking person you you will ever meet and, mm. and I love her for it but no in, in that incident I was referring to um, it was a hairdresser and I, I will say it wasn't the, the hairdresser I usually go to and they were booked out so I, I did bring her somewhere else and I didn't feel I needed to disclose the fact Katie was uh, autistic because she was really looking forward to the visit and she was very relaxed about it but um Katie has a tendency to rock a little bit. Um, it, it's called stimming. A lot of autistic um, children and people would do it. And it's um, the term stimming comes from stimulation. So it, it is essentially an activity that a neurodivergent person might do to relax themselves. And in Katie's case, as I said, she, she tends to rock a little bit. And when she was in the hairdresser's chair, um, the hairdresser had a problem with her rocking while she was brushing her hair. And to be honest, Michael, I thought she was doing fantastic. She was actually sitting very sit still. She was only fidgeting slightly. But um, the hairdresser handed me the hairbrush and, and said that she's unable to brush her hair, that I would have to do it. And then proceeded to um, make a lot of comments um, to Katie while she was cutting her hair that she just couldn't, um, she couldn't do it any longer. And she stepped back a couple of times and threw her hands in the air. And this was in front of her sister as well. And her sister felt very uncomfortable because she is very protective over Katie. Mm. Um, and as I said, Katie left that hairdresser's apologizing to me. You know, mm. she felt mm. her behavior yeah. Yeah. was yeah. really inappropriate. Um, so mm. I've no doubt that person, you know, is not a bad person. It, it just comes from informing people, Michael. You know, mm. there's a lot of good people out there. And I think majority would be horrified at the thoughts of a child feeling that way or a person feeling excluded. Um, so it really is just about informing people, understanding yeah. uh, how different people are and not having those expectations that everyone needs to conform. Mm. I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sure you're right. So uh, let's wind back a little bit. How, how do you go about doing that? Uh, because uh, it yeah. would be a wonderful town if everybody understood and accepted the differences Absolutely. and diversity uh, that there is. But uh, ha, ha, what, what are, are the uh, stepping stones to yeah. getting to that point? So, as I said, so there's, there's two things. The first thing is is essentially working with businesses. We want to roll out short, understandable training to local business staff um, that we will carry out ourselves um, to ensure the community is aware of these 
differences in neurodevelopment and, and, and that they're just understood, you know. Um, and once that training and, and, and people are informed, the second thing we want to do is roll out a neurodiversity Navin lanyard um, that was done in Sandy Mount. It's essentially a symbol that can be worn by neurodivergent children and adults either discreetly or indiscreetly. You'll see it in Dublin Airport. The DAA have rolled out a phenomenal programme uh, that's very inclusive. And this will just allow local businesses to understand that this person may need some extra support and ultimately show a level of understanding and empathy. Um, you know, and some of the big supermarkets have taken steps, Michael. You'd see, you know, there's sensory hours um, where lights are dimmed and then you no know, announcements are made during certain slots but we we need a much more coordinated effort within the town and embrace some of the changes that have been made in Sandy Mount Um, and in order to do that you know we've we've done a couple of things we have a coffee morning I I do just want to mention it's it's in the Solstice Arts um, Centre on the 25th of April at 10am Maybe the Chamber of Commerce will go along uh, Hopefully absolutely Mm. Michael Um, and um, I'm also looking to get you know, local politicians involved. I'm okay. I'm very pleased that Damien English um, was um, very quick to to accept an invitation to meet me. I'm I'm meeting him on Tuesday morning, um, and really get the community involved as well. You know, it's okay. important that this is a community campaign okay. and that everyone is involved in this movement. Okay. That's the 25th of April in uh, the Solstice Arts Centre. Uh, that's that coffee morning uh, that uh, people can show their support if they wish to. Uh, it's absolutely. Uh, very worthwhile thing you're doing and best of luck to you with it and thank you indeed for telling us about thank it Thank you, Michael. for joining us today. Siva Burke uh, who is the founder of Neurodiversity Navin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, if uh, you're renting somewhere to live and you need help, uh, we're always happy to direct you to Threshold, uh, the homeless agency. Threshold.ie is uh, the website. Uh, There's a lot of information there about the rights that you have. Uh, There's a web chat in place where you can talk to people about your rights and there's a free phone telephone number uh, where you can speak to somebody uh, about your rights. Let's speak to John Mark McCafferty, Chief Executive Officer with Threshold, because I I think, John Mark, uh, you're expecting to hear from more people from tomorrow onwards uh, who will be in need of help. Good morning, Michael. Um, Yes, so um, and and thanks for underlining the the ways in which people can contact Threshold, because we are uh, the private rented sector charity, and we're there to advise uh, renters um, on any kind of query that people might have or worries that they might have. Um, and, and worries are things that the renters, that many renters right now do have as we come to the end of the eviction ban um, tonight. Um, and that's borne out by some of our figures, for example. Um, this month um, looks like the, the busiest month since November when the eviction ban came in and lots of people had questions about the nature of the eviction ban. Um, and that's borne out by, say, figures in, on our web chats. So this month we're, we're heading uh, above 700 web chats, which is higher than during the winter months when the, when the ban uh, was, was very much in place. And we're anticipating about 430 termination cases for the end of March. Um, that's live cases where a notice of termination has been issued by a landlord. Um, and I think it's important to note as well that advisors um, across thresholds are working on existing cases. So where people have been in touch with us, say, September, October of last year, yeah. prior to the ban coming in, 
um, and those um, eviction cases or no, those notices of termination were paused during the ban. They're now coming back into play from tomorrow onwards. So people will um, actually move out or will have to move out, will be evicted from tomorrow onwards. Well, I suppose the clock starts ticking from tomorrow onwards. So um, in April, we'll see some um, some evictions, but it's it, it really depends on a number of things: um, their the, the notice periods and also um, the, when their the, their uh, notice of termination was issued. So it will be um, over time. It would be that um, uh, there will be uh, an absolute avalanche of of, of people uh, being evicted over the weekend, but we will see sustained um, increases in. Uh, Terminations uh, of leases coming to an end from uh, from next week onwards, effectively. Okay, for over the next three months, um, would you expect to see hundreds of evictions or thousands of evictions? Well, on the basis of our figures, we're certainly dealing with hundreds of evictions that are scheduled for uh, the next number of months, hundreds per month. Um, and if we're experiencing that, then the, the wider picture is probably uh, is potentially in the thousands, but certainly from our figures, it's in it's in the hundreds for for a- April, May, and June, um, and therefore we have to um, get our I guess uh, to, we have to prepare for that. Um, I think a- another pointer was the fact that you know um, among the queries that we've uh, we uh, respond to. Um, general termination queries, which is where people are renting, but they're, they're worried about the possibility of losing their home. Their landlord hasn't issued them with a notice of termination, but the, the tenant and their family are, are thinking that they might be at high risk of, of a notice of eviction. They're forecast to reach over about 160 by the, by, by the end of today, based on some of our estimates. Mm. Um, and that's compared to about um, under 130 in February. So um, those um, issues are kind of heightened um, and it, it points to a general level of anxiety among people renting and also um, the cases that are live point to um, real situations of, of renters who have been issued with a notice of termination. They were paused during the ban and they'll come into play. So, Okay, so if someone gets a, a notice to quit, a notice of termination, uh, an eviction notice, whichever uh, words you want to put on it tomorrow, yeah. uh, generally speaking, though, they'll have six months before they have to move out. Uh, and uh, the government uh, talking now about uh, them being giving first refusal. If they can't afford to buy the property, uh, well, then the council might buy it on their behalf. But I'm reading in the Irish Times today that that may not happen because the councils might refuse to buy the property because the property will be too expensive. Yeah, like I, I, there are a number of initiatives that the government is announcing or has announced. Um, they, they will help in their way, in their own way, but they are, um, there'll be small volumes relative to the overall um, volume of, of uh, notices of, of termination. So yeah, one example is that first refusal um, for the, the tenant themselves. But again, if a tenant has been renting for many years and they're paying the market rate for that rent, if they're on a low or a middle income, they have little uh, prospect of saving up the deposit to buy a house and, and to, to be eligible for uh, for for a mortgage. So that's 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 one real challenge, I suppose. Um, in terms of the tenant in situ scheme, that's where either a housing um, a, an approved housing body or a local authority purchase the the home 
to enable the, the family to remain in situ. In that circumstance, yeah, there are a number of its ifs and buts and, and conditions. And, you know, for example, if, it's, if there's one uh, person who's in a three-bedroom house, um, it, the, the local authority may not buy it. If it's, if it's, if it's too expensive, if it comes um, uh, above a certain threshold, the local authority won't buy it. If the, if the um, tenant's um, income is above a certain threshold, the uh, you know the, the the local authority or the approved housing body would be eligible to buy it. So there are various kind of qualifications around the ten, tenant and situ scheme. It's not that everything can be purchased by um, uh, by a, a, the, a, the local authority. Hmm. Um, there are certain rules. There's no emergency accommodation to speak of, is there? Well, I suppose there's emergency accommodation, but our understanding is it's close to capacity or full across local authorities. So our question, since the um, the confirmation that the eviction ban would would, would end as scheduled, it has been. Um, will we get reassurances that there will be sufficient emergency accommodation um, provided by or funded by local authorities? Um, and we haven't got a kind of direct answer to that. I think because both central government and local government know that the um, they, they, they won't have um, all of the emergency accommodation that they need um, across all local authorities. Um, and that, I think, has been compounded by the fact that the local authorities rely a lot on, on ho- uh, hotels. We are now moving into the tourist season, so um, more hotels will be doing what they were set up to do and built to do, which is you know housing tourists and, and, and people staying on a temporary basis. Um, we have issues like um, short lets, um, you know, the platforms that um, enable people to stay uh, for holidays in, pe- in people's homes. Um, there are no big changes there to, to bring on longer term supply. So that's uh, that, that's also um, an issue. Um, and I guess, um, and, and I would have mentioned this uh, yeah. before, um, the prospect that if you lose your tenancy, maybe five years ago, you would have been able to find something else and we would have assisted people to find something else in the private rented sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prospects of that are, are very low now um, and the affordability problems, especially for people on the housing assistance payment, are even more acute than they were five years ago. Indeed. So mm-hmm. there are challenges there. I, I think oh, huge challenges. Like, uh, you know, Michael, but we are there to assist people and advise people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there are any options, any housing options, we will we will assist uh, people and advise on, on, on their rights and on their options. Mm, yeah, uh, and uh, we'll uh, repeat uh, the details in a, a moment, uh, John Mark. I, I don't think there's anybody uh, who would argue that this is a shameful situation that the country has found itself in. But is, there, is the government right in arguing that it's the lesser of two evils, that if you suspend this decision, you'll only make it worse? Government are faced with a very, very difficult balancing act here. Um, yes, the eviction ban will mean, mean an increase in notices of termination and an increase in, in uh, families and people losing their rent at home at a time when there's so little supply. At the same time, um, a continued eviction ban uh, will have further impact on small landlords' decisions about whether they stay in the market or indeed whether people come into the market as a small landlord because of the uncertainty that eviction bans do pose. And unfortunately, you know, whether we like it or not, 
our re- private rented system is based on small landlords with just, just one or maybe two properties. The vast majority of landlords uh, that house um, renters only have one or two properties. And so they are making decisions based on do they want to sell this and realise that their asset, do they do they need the house for a family member moving in? They're not thinking the way larger scale landlords would um, that in a way that you would have maybe in Northern Europe where where these large um, organisations provide um, housing in the rented sector, and they're not they're not selling units the way a small landlord might. They're they're obviously not having family members moving in those kind of issues, um, and they're kind of a professional group of of large scale landlords. So the reality is we have small landlords who provide the vast majority of supply. Um, and they're making decisions right now um, that affect uh, people's um, tenancies, but they also are, are operating in a market where they themselves are looking for a level of certainty and um, things like eviction bans um, provide, I guess, greater uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So it's that balance between trying to ensure that they stay in the market in the long term and also uh, trying to uh, reduce um, homelessness and risk of homelessness from the eviction ban ending. Um, it, it isn't a difficult, it isn't a, a, an easy um, uh, conundrum for government to, to be dealing with right now. But the reality is that the eviction ban does mean an increase in homelessness. It does mean an increase in, in people coming to services like thresholds. And it probably does mean uh, uh, increased pressure on the local authority systems, probably way above and beyond their capacity to deal with them. All right. Well, if anybody renting their home, is concerned or has any concerns uh, about uh, their tenancy, Threshold can help. Threshold.ie is uh, the website. Lots of information there. Uh, you can have a, a web chat. Uh, you can even book a, a video call with one of the Threshold advisors. The free phone number is 1-800-454-454. That's 1-800-454-454. It's open from 9 in the morning till 9 in the evening weekdays. Uh, and uh, we hope that you don't get uh, as many calls as is feared, John Mark, uh, because some people are facing into a very bleak situation as we speak. Thank you for talking to us uh, this morning. Thank as you. Always. Thank you. John Mark McCarthy is the Chief Executive Officer with Threshold. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yesterday, the Dáil heard statements on uh, the report for the Minister for Defence from the Independent Review Group into the Defence Forces. Uh, I'm satisfied that establishing this independent review was a first scoping exercise when these issues came to the fore in 2021 was the correct decision. I think what's important now, Akahirli, is that we quickly build on it and a statutory inquiry is one of the logical and necessary next steps, examining how complaints have been dealt with, but also facilitating the opportunity for those to bring their experiences to uh, such a statutory inquiry. I want to assure the House that I will bring forward terms of reference for this inquiry as soon as possible, engaging with stakeholders in their preparation. As I said in my initial response to the report, A completely honest appraisal of the problems and a comprehensive plan to address them is the only way to honour the contribution of serving and retired personnel. It is the only way to rebuild trust. In that spirit, I am clear that the Department of Defence must and will be included in the terms of reference for the statutory inquiry. 
Indeed, there are many problems in Ireland's Defence Forces. What this report is, is almost 400 pages that once again captures in a single place, and again, not for the first time, the extent of abuse experienced by some in uniform at the hands of others in uniform. Tom Clonan's report was published in 2000. It showed that one in four women serving in the Defence Forces had been subjected to sexual abuse. On the back of that report, there was a government study review group in 2003 to then Fianna Fáil Minister Michael Smith. Now, culture eats strategy for breakfast. That is particularly true where there exists a chain of command or a hierarchy and without effective implemented policies, management and control, nothing is going to change. And if this report represents, if not one of the darkest days in the Defence Forces, well then the most bleakest to date. And it demands immediate action. I personally didn't get past the glossary of terms before I started feeling revulsion. Tubbing, beasting, these are terms we associate with hazing. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on defence. Before that, we heard uh, from uh, the Tánaiste Micheál Martin. We can speak now to Sorka Clark, who is uh, the defence spokesperson for Sinn Féin. And a very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, we morning, heard Michael. We heard a lot about uh, the sexual harassment, uh, sexual uh, abuse, uh, and indeed the rape of members. But there's many problems, obviously, in the defence forces. Uh, and you refer there to tubbing, which is the placing, the report says, is the placing of an individual in a barrel which may contain a combination of chemicals, oil, airplane fuel, uh, deceased animal carcasses or other substances for the purposes of hazing or punishment. Yeah, yeah. What? I mean, it, the, the report in itself is stark. There is, there is no other way of describing it. And it, it, it gives a very clear view of what some of the experiences of those who have served in the Defence Forces have had in the past, but are also continuing to have today. And, and I say that quite purposely, Michael. The, if you cast your mind back to literally weeks ago, at the beginning of the month, the Supreme Court ruled that the Air Corps itself had failed to comply with a Supreme Court order in relation to the turning over safety statements for chemicals in relation to the litigation that the Taunashta referred to yesterday in the Dáil by an ex-member of the Air Corps. The, I was struck yesterday in the Taunashta statements that while he did reference obviously the inclusion of the Defence Forces themselves in the statutory inquiry and the Department of Defence, he didn't specifically mention the reserves, nor did he mention the ministerial roles and how they actually interact with each other. I am firmly of the opinion that any statutory inquiry needs to look at every single cog that is involved in the area of defence. This needs to be in in its entirety the last time that a report is published and the last time that we are speaking about whether it's intimidation, bullying, harassment, sexual abuse, any of those very dishonourable actions in the defence forces. And that needs to include all aspects of any area that has a fingerprint in the area of defence. How soon can we expect arrests? That's an excellent question. It's not one that I have an answer to. The um, the terms of reference are going to be and need to be the next starting point. 
and they need to be very much um, survivor focused. Now, there are legislative changes that need to take place and um, that can take a period of time. There's a process that For needs complaints to, be to go through. to the Gardaí rather than military police. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. most people weren't aware that that was actually how things work at the moment, but it is how things work at the moment. There's a, there, there is a statutory process that needs to be gone through with that. And as I said to the Tonality yesterday, Sinn Féin will work in a collaborative approach with, that, with in relation to that. But there are other recommendations in the report that do not need a legislative basis that can actually be implemented much, much quicker. So we need to see the statutory, we need to see the non-statutory and we need to see the legislative proposals mm. all moving at the same time. There's no justification of one being delayed on the foot of, of another needing to progress or to be completed. That is not the space that we are in at the moment. The, the report is incredibly clear when it says that the failure to implement the recommendations will mean further regression and nobody wants to see that happen for the Defence Forces. Mm. That said, the survivors deserve justice. The perpetrators need to be held to account. Mm. So they need to have an input into the, the terms of reference. Now, most people will recall the documentary that was done by Katie Hannon with the Women of Honour. The Women of Honour didn't participate in the IRG review. They accompanied and they assisted others to participate in it, but they themselves didn't. So the information that was contained in that documentary, that is nowhere captured in this report, which is why I say, Jesse, I fundamentally believe that there are other people out there who are either experiencing it now or did in the past and they can only come forward when they have the reassurance that this will be statutory, that there will be a power of compelability because that lack of compelability is what was almost a red line issue for the Women of Honour, that they wouldn't participate in it. There is a serious, serious problem in our Defence Forces. But not everybody who has served or has served has been involved in either the causes of them problems. Mm. They are good people. They are of high moral standing. They are being failed while the actions of others go unaccounted for. You mentioned not right. You mentioned Tom Clonan's report of uh, 20 years ago. Um, people should have known about it. The elite in the Defence Forces didn't seem oh, Michael, to. Oh, I do. It's not people should have known about it. I believe people did know about it. What I believe happened was that they failed to act. Hmm. Why? I mean, this is uh, appalling stuff by anybody's standard. I mean, I never heard of tubbing. Uh, forgive my naivety uh, uh, until this report was published. But the idea of putting somebody in a, a barrel with rotten animal carcasses or chemicals or airplane fuel or whatever uh, is out of a, a Breaking Bad movie. Rape uh, is one of the most serious crimes in the state. Yeah, yeah. And the report captured quite in, in quite detail and it was referenced very clearly that this this picture that some people have in their mind of what a member of the Defence Forces looks like needs to change. The report they actually refer to as as comparing the ideal member of the Defence Forces to essentially being a Marvel character. Now that's their words, not mine. The um and in that way it, it contributes to to the underappreciation and the lack of placement value of what other people who don't fit them characteristics can bring to the table. Also, the, we need to see this, Michael, as, as soon as possible. The engagement needs to start now, if not last week, when this report came out. And you also need to bear in mind that the Tonish has had this report now for eight weeks. They have had the time to go through it, go through it again. They've had the time to digest it and all the appendices that came along with it, 297 pages of them. They have had the time to do that. We cannot afford, the Defence Forces cannot afford to waste any more time. The work on this needs to begin now. Mm. 
Yeah, well, uh, there's uh, this inquiry, the statutory inquiry, uh, but when will the guards get involved? Uh, and uh, at what scale will that investigation be at? Uh, how many members, if this was such a commonplace, widespread problem within uh, the Defence Forces, if it was endemic, cultural or whatever, are we going to see a, a lot of uh, members of the army uh, in the dock as such? It, it is quite possible, but we need to be very clear. The Army is only one branch of the Defence Forces. Mm. There is also the Navy, there is also the Air Corps, there is also the Reserves, there is also the Civil Defence. There, there is more to this than just simply pointing the finger at the Army. That's that's unfair, and I think that needs to be said. Mm. The Where this ends, I don't know. What the outcome of it is fundamentally needs to be a change as to how people are actually valued in the Defence Forces. We are talking about a military structure. We are talking about a chain of command. And that's very different to any other entity that you or I are probably familiar with working in. And that needs to be remembered also with this. It isn't simply a case of, well, this has worked in a private sector, therefore it's transferable to our Defence Forces. That's not true. The chain of command is there for a reason, the, um, and that needs to be sacrosanct. However, there are ways of actually enforcing a chain of command that doesn't result in individuals being abused. That's also a fact. Uh, am I right in thinking if offences were um, uh, took place overseas, um, mm. that uh, there may be no uh, sanction for that? Yes, that's, that's an, it, it is an added layer to it. I'm reluctant to use the word complication, but it would have to involve another entity then again. So if somebody was in service, say, of the UN overseas, there would be a different dynamic to that also. The, um, it, is, it is a critical part of this, but again, it's another part that's not going to be addressed unless the terms of reference are actually correct. So if you want to see the results in any branch of the Defence Forces, if it is going to include overseas duties, it is all going to come back to them terms of reference. The, you know, what engagement needs to be had with the UN or any other entity outside the state? That's a question for, for the Minister at the moment and for the Tawnish at the moment. I know what I would personally like to see happen and I would like to see that involvement there. But again, until we get the terms of reference and them being correct, anything that comes out at the end of this is not going to, it's simply just not going to work. It's almost like trying to build a house on a foundation of sand. If your foundation isn't solid, well then anything else that comes afterwards just simply isn't going to work Mm. or stand the test of time. And there's an unfairness to that that can't happen as well. Now, if we get the terms of reference correct, the non-statutory work that needs to be done and and the statutory work all moving at the same time. And just for a bit of clarity, one of the recommendations in the report is actually that there should be maternity wear. I mean, one would presume that's quite easily fixed on the next round of procurement of uniforms. But the, um, the, the, the statutory work of it and the statutory inquiry, that is where you are going to see recommended changes, the necessary changes being formulated, being discussed and it's where you are going to hopefully possibly in the near future see those who have participated in this, in these horrendous horrendous yeah. um, abuses of others actually being held to account for it The um, it is a huge job of work but it is one that needs to be done it's one that we have seen reflected 
and existing in other militaries across the world also. The, and there is a huge amount of research there as to how other areas have looked and have conducted. The uh, air military would be not not entirely comparable with others because of our, our non-alignment stance. But where there has been good learnings in other areas and where those good learnings have brought about the necessary change, they need to be looked at and scrutinised by, by any recommendations that come out of this. But again, Michael, I'm going to come back to the very basics of this. The terms of reference for the statutory inquiry, they need to be set. They need to be set quickly. The inquiry itself needs to be time-bound. We cannot have this running mm. for the next 10 or 15 years completely intolerable. It needs to be realistic time frame. The um, because remember also we are in the area of when we when we're talking about defence of the recommendations that came from the Commission on the Future of Defence Forces. That's mm. that's another big job of work that's going on as well at the same time. The um so the terms of reference needs to be set. It needs to uncover the permanent, the reserves, the um the Department of Defence and also the the role of ministers in this. Mm. We need to know who knew and we need to know when they knew, and we need to know why it is that they failed to act, and they need to be held accountable for it. Okay, well, there's no doubt a can of worms has been opened, and uh, there's uh, an awful lot for us all to contemplate over the coming weeks, months, possibly years. Uh, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today. That's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on defence, Sorka Clark. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. The ban on evictions lapses from midnight tonight. People are at their wits end, Tanisha. They're running out of options to put a roof over their heads, and families, the length and breadth of this state, are running out of road. Now, with eyes wide open, every single one of you over in that side of this room has decided to inflict misery, to inflict pain on those individuals. Call this decision what it is. It is a government choosing to push thousands of working families towards homelessness. When will anyone of your government badges face up to that reality? Because that is the reality. When will you face up to the fact that you're choosing to make working families, single people, pensioners and your own constituencies homeless? For the love of God, we are supposed to be in here to do right, to do good for people, not to impose harm, pain, anxiety and and homelessness on individuals. But you have done exactly the opposite. You are throwing those people to the wolves. So I'll ask you the simple question we've asked you for weeks. When are you going to give us an answer? When are you going to give those families an answer? Where are they going to go when you remove the safety net from them? The tarnished uh, Michal Martin responded to Piers Doherty in the Dáil yesterday. The fundamental point that an indefinite eviction ban would make the situation worse and is not um, a viable policy is one shared by you and your party. You don't propose an indefinite eviction ban. You propose exactly the same as the government has decided this week, only you delay it for a number of months. You've changed the delay time. It was December the 31st, then it was January the 31st, and now apparently you've you've had a new iteration of essentially the same point. So what you've attacked with great fury for the last number of weeks is exactly what you propose to do yourselves. And in addition to that, you've also acknowledged that there cannot be a transformation in the overall housing situation within six months or within the lifetime of any um, eviction ban. So there's a very dishonest proposition being put by you and your party in respect of this entire issue because what you really are about through the chair is the exploitation of the issue. And then the gloves came off. You 
propose to do the very same thing on Christmas week? Not a chance. Yes, you did. Get it. Stop you your misleading. On Christmas week. You're a disgrace. You stand you there are, and mislead the goal are, every sorry, single sorry, time. Sorry. He's a disgrace. Sorry. I will not. Sorry. You're a disgrace. Oh, oh, He's misleading Mr. over and over again. Misleading over and over again. Misleading over and over again. No, no. This is not on. This, this I, I am not going to see the procedures of the House subverted. People are entitled to speak. You are entitled to make your point, and you've made it very strongly. The Tonishta is entitled to respond without interruption. I would ask him not to without mislead the goal over and over again. We don't, need, we don't need comment after comment. We don't need it. Through the Chair, I think Sinn Féin's tolerance of free debate has always been one that has been questioned over the years. Uh, and, uh, with, with respect, you, you may, on a point of order, on a point of order, I was the person who had to take that man to the High Court because he was subverting democracy and was found guilty because you tried to... That's the reality. You and your government were found guilty. Your army of trolls may brought me... Sorry, Sorry. Sorry, the Tony won't answer anything. I'm on my feet. Persist with this, and I will suspend the House. I'm not going to tolerate it. The people out there who are watching this Parliament conduct its business are disgusted with the sort of behaviour that goes on here. People need to be, people need to be able to speak without interruption. And I won't allow you be interrupted, but I won't allow you interrupt anybody else either. Now, Carla, okay. with all due respect, there's been comments being thrown from that side of the House also. Okay. So I would I've enough said. There's maybe no point. you should look over there and speak to the Chair. Can I just make the point? I appreciate the challenge you have, Kyokola. I've endeavoured to reply. I've been shouted down repeatedly. That's a tactic. I, I love what I'm Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? Can we please? No answers. I have 48 hours. Can we please? You don't want to listen. It's a tactic. It's a tactic. It's a deliberate tactic. And that's the final word today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme Monday morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.